I have been given the topic dispensationalism and hyper-dispensationalism. Let me uh, give an introduction to the introduction. We don't know each other, so let's just chat for a few minutes. Alan mentioned the fact that we may be kind of walking on one another. Uh, I remember the old saw that review aids reinforcement. So if we cover some of the same things, you're just learning it a little deeper, okay? There's nothing wrong with that. I'll also add that I didn't bring Brett's Groucho Marx outfit. <laughs> Alan picked up on that. I'll, I'll leave it alone, okay? So there will be some overlap, maybe a little bit of difference, a nuanced difference in interpretation of some things. I like that term better, difference, rather than disagreement. My grandfather had a saying that I kind of liked. It went like this. If we agree on everything, one of us is superfluous. So we don't agree on everything. Last summer at a camp in Missouri, Brett left where we were staying and said there was going to be a meeting of the brass, the really important people, the runners of your group. And they were meeting to plan a meeting that I've never heard of a certainty conference before, but that's what they were, they were going to go down and probably munch on some things and discuss things and pick out speakers. A little while later, he came back and he said, Dad, guess what? Your number's being called. You're one of the speakers. I said, oh, yeah, well, what's the topic? He said, uh, dispensationalism. It's called a certainty conference. And I said, yeah, well, what are they certain about? <laughs> or uncertain. Well, after 50 years of full-time service, it'll be 50 years for me this August, teaching at a Bible college for 20 years, pastoring a church for better than 26 years, I wasn't too worried. I have 2,000 sermons, 5,000 Bible lessons. Surely all I'll have to do is go home and just rifle through these things and come up with dispensationalism. This will be a piece of cake. And besides that, the thing was nine months off. Why worry about it? Did you ever say you'll do something and then when it gets closer, you're a little bit sorry that you said you would do it? <laughs> I mean, the rapture will surely happen before that, so. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll do it. So I filed it away for a while. Oh, I assembled a little bit of material. And then Brett said, don't really get down to brass tacks and do anything because Alan's coming. And he'll tell you exactly what you're going to do. 
Well, Ellen finally came about four weeks ago. <laughs> and I found out that the material I had assembled had really not very much to do with what I was supposed to do. And I found out that Alan already knew what he was going to do, and he had cherry-picked the good topics. <laughs> so my part is dispensational aberrance, which meant I would cover primarily hyper- and ultra-dispensationalism. Well, that narrowed it a bit. You can't just pluck something out of the air. I didn't have too much on that, I didn't think. If education is knowing more and more about less and less, this exercise will surely qualify as education for me. I couldn't find so much as a reference to hyperdispensationalism in my notes. I felt like the deacon at the business meeting when the pastor recommended the purchase of a fancy chandelier as a proposed centerpiece of a renovated lobby. Every pastor has to have at least one deacon who fancies himself as the loyal opposition. And during the meeting, the good deacon arose and he said, well, I'm against it. And for several reasons. He said, first of all, We've gotten along fine without one all these years. Second of all, we can't afford one. Thirdly, nobody here can spell it. <laughs> and then he said, finally, there ain't a soul here who can play one. Now that, folks, was about my level of expertise on the subject of hyper-dispensationalism. And while I was preparing this, books out all over the place, Wikipedia pages all over the office, my wife walked in. It's the job of pastors' wives to keep them poor and humble. And mine is an expert in both areas, I might add. <laughs> she looked at it all and said, what are you doing? You've been in here for hours. And I said, well, I'm preparing for this certainty conference. And she said, well, apparently, if you don't know any more about it than you do, why did they choose you? <laughs> mm -hmm. I looked around and I thought, you know, that's a pretty good question. <laughs> Now, over the past cramming few weeks, Bullinger and Darby and Irving and O'Hare and Ironside and Stam have become my new buddies. Now, we're going to get pretty far into the weeds before this thing is all over. And then another horrifying thought, thought hit. Okay, so you assemble this and you get it together. How are you going to make it interesting? This doesn't exactly look like hallelujah material to me. <laughs> and I'm still worried about that. <laughs> now note, underscore, star, 
Disclaim, I make no claim to expertise on the subject. But as one liberal said to the other, brothers and sisters, let me share a few things with you. <laughs> a few things that I have recently, very recently, stumbled across. And I'll get to the hyper stuff later, and we'll just lay a little background today. First of all, definition of terms. And this is right out of a theology text. Dispensationalism is an evangelical, futurist, interpretive system for the Bible. It maintains that the Bible was divided deliberately by God into divine periods or ages, allotted distinctive administrative principles. The word dispensation, Greek oikos, house, and nomos, law or rules, comes or gives us the English word economy. And you can see that the roots are pretty much the same, economy. So it is an administration of affairs, a stewardship, a mode of dealing, and each age of the plan administered in a certain way and humanly is held responsible as a steward and each dispensation is marked by a cycle. Now if you're taking notes, let's look at the cycle very quickly here. God reveals himself and his truth to a human being. God reveals himself and his truth to a human being. Those in that era, humanity, they're held responsible to conform to that way or revelation. It's revealed to a hero, and then man is responsible for carrying it out. Ultimately, man rebels, and God is obliged to judge. And then this introduces a new period of probation under a new administration as the cycle revs up again. Now, although there are flying in the dispensational sky some rare birds, some minimalists espousing three, four, or five divisions, there are some that espouse eight or nine. The mass of the aviary formation, birds I have run into, adheres to seven, however. Seven. Now, go slow enough where you can just list them. The classical divisions. One, innocence. Genesis chapter one through three. And the hero in that case is Adam prior to the fall. Of course, the cycle kicks in, and it's going to end with expulsion from the garden. Two, conscience, Genesis 3 through 8. Expulsion from the garden to deluge. Three, human government, Genesis 9 through 11. Civilization becomes organized. Man is obligated to follow the rules of the civilization. And to ensure that man does this, the death penalty is instituted. That pre prevents anarchy. 
That prevents something what we saw in Chicago last week. Four, promise. Genesis 12 through Exodus 19. Abraham to Moses. And it ends with the national big balk at the border of Canaan. Fifth, law. Exodus chapter 20. And here they disagree somewhat, but some of the folks say to Matthew chapter 2. Most would say to Matthew chapter 27 and 28. And some would end this section with the diaspora A.D. 70. We'll discuss the variants a little bit later on. Some of, some of them even go into Acts, and that's where a lot of it hits the fan as to where you're going to place your lines in the book of Acts. And then there is grace, Matthew 28 to Revelation 4, come up hither, which launches the tribulation, the judgment side of that. Seven is the millennial kingdom, Revelation 20, chapters 4 through 6, the thousand-year reign put down after the final rebellion. And then the eternal state, the eternal state, that would be number eight, actually, that some people include, Revelation 20 through 22. Some terminology that will crop up ubiquitously in the literature as you read it that you need to know. The word age, age, Greek aeon, from which we get the English word eon. The word means a period of time viewed in relation to what takes place in it. A period of time viewed in relation to what takes place in it. An era marked by spiritual or moral characteristics. Monumental achievements or monumental failures, all centered around a hero. Sometimes the, the age, in a secular sense, is actually the name of that hero, like the golden age of Pericles. Key verses, king of the ages, 1 Timothy 1.7. The plan has plural units, king of the ages. There are there are units to it, divisions to it. Before the ages, 1 Corinthians 2, 7, it has a starting point. Creator of the ages, Hebrews 1, 2. This plan has an originator. The completion of the ages, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, and Hebrews 9, 26. This plan has a terminus. The present evil age, Galatians 1.4, we're in it, and I'm afraid we're in the bad end of it now, moving toward the end. The purpose of the ages, Ephesians 3.11, it has a theme, and then the age to come, Ephesians 1.21, it has a climax. The human responsibility in key verses, give account of thy stewardship, Luke 16, 2. The dispensation of the fullness of times, Ephesians 1, 10. A dispensation of the grace of God, Ephesians 3, 2. A dispensation of the gospel, 
1 Corinthians 9.17. I intended to run through these again and show you the four stages and what's in each stage, but we're not going to have time to do that, so I'll move over past some of this material. Now, in my outline, I have a brief history here. A reiterated charge leveled by mainline churches and covenant proponents is that dispensationalists are Johnny-come-latelys. So we'll talk a little bit about the seedbed or dispensationalism in embryo. Are we Johnny-come-latelys? Modern dispensationalism is traceable to the early 19th century. And since it's really so new, historically speaking, there can't be anything to it. Broadly defined, however, the idea of dividing Scripture to make sense of a divine decree or plan predates even the church councils that officially fixed the canon of Scripture. For instance, Irenaeus, 2nd century, Antinician father, arranged Scripture into divisions. Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, he followed with his effort at dividing up the Bible in order to make sense of it. Joachim of Fior, 1135 to 1202, produced a quite extensive, if flawed, outline of the ages or plan. Now others, and don't worry about getting these names, if somebody asks you to regurgitate these in the future, they're just being mean. But John Bale, Thomas Brightman, John Archer, Thomas Manton, William Sherman, Francis Hutchinson, and then a couple that you probably have heard of, Jonathan Edwards and Isaac Watts. I'd like to give a little thumbnail sketch of those, but I'm sure you know something about them. And they all produce schemes of Scripture that segmented Scripture and then offered an explanation of how the segments worked together and were moving towards some kind of a logical end. The Westminster Confession of Faith, 17th century, noted, quote, various dispensations in the Bible. So you see, it's not all that new, the general idea. To be sure, the doctrines of premillennialism and rapture preceded modern, fully evolved dispensationalism. But when assembled together, they plugged in so neatly that they were apparently designed to fit together. How many of you like puzzles? I don't personally, but I have done them some in the past. Do you ever notice how slow it goes at first? And then you start grouping things together and you see this and you see that. And finally, at the end, you're just throwing down pieces to, to finish the thing up. Because there's enough there already that it's apparent what has to happen. So the assertion that the system or hermeneutic we call dispensationalism is a fanciful latter-day innovation is not remotely accurate. It is true the forms or the structure divisions have evolved. But the concept is as old as the compilation of parchments into a canon or a biblos, a book. A book, a book that we can handle. 
a book that's all together. Thank you, Mr. Gutenberg. And now we can handle the book in another way. If you have the correct hermeneutic, you can handle it because you can know what's in it and how it fits together. All right, the evolution. One of the key modern dividers of Holy Writ was a Jesuit priest. Isn't that odd? Don't say nothing good ever came from Rome. Not much I'll go with, but not nothing. His name was Manuel Lacunza. Manuel Lacunza, L-A-C-U-N-Z-A. And he wrote a work called, a missive called, very impressive name. They liked long titles in those days, I've noticed. And the longer the title, the more scholarly it was. And his book was entitled, The Coming of Messiah in Glory and Majesty. It was published under the nom de plume Ben Ezra. A Scottish Protestant, Edward Irving, translated it, adding his own commentary to it, and he published it and then taught it in clearly displayed dispensational concept form. He came over to America and he taught it. He taught it everywhere. He taught it at the Albury Prophetic Conference in 1827. So the seeds, and he was the sower of seeds, are taking root. And at length, the green appeared above ground. As a first group espousal, the Plymouth Brethren, mid-19th century Ireland, then moved into England. They institutionally embraced the divisional concept. Anybody sense a bandwagon taking place? Well, maybe not quite. The flag bearer of the spread was one John Nelson Darby, 1800 to 1882, known as the father of dispensationalism. And his proof text was 2 Timothy 2.15. Where have we heard that one? Rightly dividing the word of truth. That was the point of departure. That was what you might call the proof text of the movement. The genesis of the movement. Therefore, it draws anti-dispensational fire. The King James, for instance, should never have translated it that way. Pulpit commentary is typical of the exegetical circumlocution taking place here. To wit, they say this verse is a metaphor teaching that one should not be a word fighter. One who engages in profitless disputation. Well, they're disputing. I guess you can only dispute on one side. The dividing is to handle a right or cut straight. And the writer ends this little diatribe by stating, whatever the metaphor is, now wait a minute, you have a hermeneutic, but you're not sure what it means. You're not sure how it comes out. Whatever the metaphor is, it means don't trifle with the word. Well, who's trifling with the word? 
Pulpit Commentary, Volume 21, if you want to look it up. I had a professor in college, Garland Babb, who going through this section said, this is to be applied to the Old Testament only, not the New. In other words, you can cut up the Old Testament any way you want to. We don't care. Just leave the New Testament alone. The footnote in the Ruckman study Bible that I have, and by the way, Dr. Ruckman is, I don't think it's passed yet, but he's in hospice fighting for his life, and he has, he has been the primary impetus to the whole King James movement, and we owe him a lot, and I know he's an oddball. I understand that but we owe him a lot. And he says this, every English version of the Bible since 1885, including the New King James Version, from the Textus Resubstus, let me uh, quibble with him a little bit here. He should have put supposedly or partially from the TRN because many of the corrections made in the New King James Bible are from the neutral text. But I digress. He says it has pre perverted the verse and destroyed the only command in the Bible to study the Bible. The verse tells you what you are to study, how you are to study it, and why you are to study it. According to many, the whole context is about the Old Testament. John 5, 39, search the scriptures, Old Testament, only? Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. There are hints in there about me. And they are they which testify of me. I had an actual encounter with a history professor at Southwest Missouri State University years ago. His name was Billy Bob Lightfoot. Billy Bob? Hard to pull off really being, you know, scholarly with a name like Billy Bob. <laughs> so Billy Bob didn't go by Billy Bob. He went by BB. That's the trick. You just go by the initials. BB Lightfoot. This guy was about as arrogant as they come. He had the pipe. And Alan, wherever you are, he had the beard. And we were in a graduate class of about 12 or 14 kids. And he sat at the end, and right next to him was my seat, right here. He always smoked that pipe, which kept going out. So I had to hear this <laughs> sucking on that pipe the whole time. To, it nauseated me, spittle running down. I hate pipes from that time on. <laughs> if you're a pipe smoker, I'm sorry, okay? You might have one or two lurking in here. I don't know. I, I've noticed when I was in Missouri that this crowd hugs a lot. I'm not into hugging except with my wife, all right? <laughs> I have a rather broad personal space. I'll just add this. I will do it if you insist 
I will hug. Even if you're a man and as ugly as sin, I, I will hug. If you smoke a pipe, however, you stay away from me, all right? Well, in this encounter, he got off over on scriptures. He fancied himself, even though it was a secular history class, and being a theologian. His father was a preacher from Fort Worth and actually knew J. Frank Norris. He said, you see, son, your problem is you don't see that that can only apply to the Old Testament, this rightly dividing stuff. And then he went on to say, any mention of Scripture in the New Testament is always a reference to the Old Covenant. There is no access to anything akin to Scripture in the New Testament. And to ascribe Scripture to the New Testament is a display of ignorance. Even the apostles knew that they didn't have Scripture. So I, when he was talking, was opening my Bible. And he just kept talking. And I was kind of a smart aleck in those days. I've matured a lot since then. And I shoved it over in front of him and said, Read uh, verses uh, 14, 15, and 16. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, mysteries, which they that are unlearned and unstable, he's reading this, rest as they do also the other scriptures. Ooh, Paul had scriptures. Under their own destruction. His face turned as red as Rudolph's nose. And I was forever after that on his hit list. He never forgave me. And he even tried to submarine me during the orals, the last thing you have to do before you get a master's degree. Listen, a liberal messes with much of the Bible he doesn't like. A covenant theologian, mainline guys, go after the verses that support divisions. Do you ever stop to think that they refer to them as covenant theologians? Theologians? If you hold that position, you're a theologian. You hardly ever hear of a dispensationalist theologian. And I know it's harder to say. But one has to be quite a narcissist to call themselves a theologian at all. And what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a theologian. I much prefer student of the Bible. All of us are just students of the Bible. Have you ever tried to call on someone and discuss the Bible with them? They say, oh, I'm an expert on the Bible. 
I, I've read it almost all the way through. <laughs> okay, back to Darby. We chased a couple of rabbits there, but it was fun. John Nelson, convinced he had fashioned the key to solving the riddle of alleged contradictions and most exegetical problems, took to the road to spread the good word. He toured Europe, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States, and he really got traction in America, especially among Baptists and traditional Presbyterians. They rejected his soteriology and ecclesiology, he was a Calvinist, but exhibited near euphoria over his eschatology. The end times. Most of the American audience hadn't heard that before. And it was something that was exciting to congregants everywhere. He got positive reviews everywhere he went. Suddenly, portions of the Bible that had never been germane to the average churchgoer were exciting and studied. The book of the Revelation, for instance, changed from an ununderstandable, undecipherable mystery whose contents were largely buried somewhere in the history of the Roman Empire to an exciting narrative about the impending world order with literal rulership by a literally returned king of kings. And it gave impetus and urgency to the mandate to evangelize. We need to get busy because after all, the king is coming. The king is coming. The old dispensational bandwagon now begins to pick up some speed. And the next accelerant is C.I. Schofield. C.I. Schofield, aided by a board of like-minded luminaries, published his reference Bible, 1909, Oxford Publishers, and it came with overtly dispensational notes. And soon the Blackback 66, emblazoned with the Schofield Reference Bible that you're so familiar with, I'm sure, was everywhere. In the time I was old enough to take a note of the fact of what was going on around me, I was a slow developer. I was about 12 or 13 years of age all the way up to when I quit coming home to my home church, around 40 years of age, in a congregation that peaked at averaging from about 1955 to 62, it averaged about almost 5,000 a Sunday in attendance. I was going to bring, and I forgot to do it, a picture from Life Magazine. They did a religious special in 1955, I think it was, and they call the Temple Baptist Church of Detroit the largest church in the world, the largest Protestant church in the world. We weren't Protestants, but why quibble? It had 6,500 people in front of the main auditorium. They closed off one of the main streets of Detroit. Now, in all that time and among that crowd, there were maybe two or three Thompson Change chain reference Bibles and the rest were King James Bibles, Schofield reference Bibles, and the terms were almost synonymous in the minds of many. Old Schofield, 
You didn't have to say New Schofield back in those days. Old Schofield. Not until I went to college, 1961, did I learn that the New American Standard Version was really the one to hoist if you really wanted to appear to be intellectual. I took an Acts class from a man by the name of Dr. Stuart Custer. And he said, you're serious about Bible study, aren't you? In the class, we're serious. You're paying good money, aren't you? Yeah, we're paying good money here and everything. Well, then you need to get a New American Standard Bible if you're really serious. If you want to play around in the puddle, rather than get, swing on to your old King James Version, I guess was the bottom line of that. And so many of the kids switched. Now, they didn't exactly ban King James in Greenville, but they preferred you not carry it in. But there were always some holdouts. Every year they held what was called their Bible conference. And during those years, two or three times, he must have known someone or had some pictures or something. I don't know what, but this guy who was a strong, not only King James guy, but Schofield guy, was invited to speak in Bible conference. The faculty hated it. His name was Henry Gruby. Henry Gruby had heart trouble, and he finally did die a couple of years later. But he would get up, and in his slow way, he would say, I take my text this morning from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Students, you will find it on page 1206 if you have the right kind of a Bible. Every time he spoke, if you have the right kind of a Bible, the faculty hated it. A few years back, Bibles proliferate all over the place now, even at Bob Jones, different kinds of Bibles. There was a guy there, I was in the bookstore looking over to see if I could get some material. And down the row was one of the speakers, and I had forgotten his name, but I recognized it at the time. And he was a strong King James guy, an old codger. And a student walked up to him and said, Brother, would, would you sign my Bible? And he looked at the student, and he said, Is it a King James Bible? And the kid said, Yeah. He said, Okay, I'll sign it. I don't sign anything but King James Bibles. And I, I, a bunch of people heard him and started laughing. And I started laughing. But I wasn't laughing the way some of them were laughing. I was laughing because I knew there are a few nuts left, okay? <laughs> D.L. Moody. And his school and Bible conferences and his speakers clambered on board the bandwagon here, and these guys spread out all over the country, writing books and holding Bible conferences. And some of their names, some of their names will appear in your King James Bible if you have the right edition. 
And they are, and these guys are heroes. And most of the folks in conservative churches today don't even know who they are. R.A. Torrey. James M. Gray. How many of you have heard of James M. Gray? Nobody? One? William Erdman. A.C. Dixon. A.J. Gordon. William Eugene Blackstone. On the outside of his books, just W.E.B. And everybody at one point knew who he was. How many of you have ever heard of Blackstone? All right, Blackstone was a lawyer, a brilliant man, and his law book was the standard fare of law schools all over the country for at least a generation. He authored the bestseller of the 1800s. Other than the Bible, his book was the bestseller. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Sadly, the present generation of preachers knows next to nothing about these giants who helped turn back the tidal wave of rationalism that hit our shores in the late 19th century. And I'm not talking about Waters World necessarily, but what folks today don't know is scary. Is scary. I live up in the Toledo area. You probably would not have a United States of America today if a couple of things hadn't happened in the Toledo area. They should be as famous as Bunker Hill, but they're not. Oliver Hazard Perry, he won the Battle of Lake Erie. And the British controlled Canada and were trying to send things down through the Great Lakes to resupply troops in the middle of the country. The War of 1812. Perry won and they couldn't send those supplies. There was another battle right near where sometimes we go to eat, almost on the, on the property, called the Battle of Fallen Timbers. How many of you have ever heard of Matt Anthony Wayne? All right, more. Matt Anthony Wayne and the Battle of Fallen Timbers push the British out. Otherwise, American history might have been just a parenthesis of about 38 years in British history. And the whole thing would have reverted back. We wouldn't have a nation. And listen, we wouldn't have the religion and the churches and the movements and the evangelism that we have if it hadn't been for these men that I've just talked about. Did you know that Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, conservative Christianity, fundamentalism was almost gone by the turn of the 20th century? It was turned back by dispensationalists, men such as I've described. The universities and even the theological seminaries played a role. Now many of the 
secular universities and more and more the theological seminaries soaked up the rationalism of Germany and wrung it out over our land. Graduates soon occupied pulpits, especially in the North, who reduced the Bible to a useful prop to spread progressive ideas, but secretly believed it was, well, it's more objectionable parts and cultural anachronisms and political incorrectness could be altered at the whim of any teacher or preacher that wanted to change it. Did you know that about 45 minutes from where I live, you cannot preach on Romans chapter 1? You'll get a warning, and you do it again, you get a fine. You do it a third time, jail time, for preaching out of Romans chapter 1. Oh, Canada, indeed. Consequently, by the turn of the 20th century, one church historian wrote this, quote, Orthodox Christianity was in danger of perishing from off the face of the earth. It was that close. Humanly speaking, it was that close. Then came the modernist fundamentalist war, waged primarily in the Northern Baptist Convention. The more conservative types in there fought hard, but were losing election after election, at first narrowly and then more convincingly. The term fundamentalist was coined by Curtis Lee Laws in the conservative paper of the Northern Baptist Convention, the Watchman Examiner. There was also a liberal counterpart paper. And their theology was pushed into the breach and turned the tide. That meant their premillennialism. They weren't welcome, so they left. You can stay in a movement too long. They left. They took their eschatology with them. They took their soul-winning zeal, their newly imbibed dispensationalism, And these provided break fronts that turned back modernism, as it was called then. The great evangelists of the early 20th century played their role. I'm talking Sam Jones, Bob Jones, Fighting Bob Shuler, a Methodist, Billy Sunday, Mordecai Ham, and give Billy Graham his due. He got a lot of folks saved. And he did, in his early days particularly, have somewhat of a proclivity for preaching on the end time, which meant that he was somewhat of a dispensationalism. What he is today, sometimes I wonder. But then he was loosely a dispensationalist. And then there's the school movement, which countered the liberal flow of graduates that were filling pulpits. Moody Bible Institute, 1886. The Bible Institute of Los Angeles, or Biola, 1908. Philadelphia College of the Bible, 1913, and others. And together, they were called by one writer, the nucleus for the spread of American dispensationalism. They were almost all dispensationalist schools. 
some stronger than others, but dispensationalists. Many of these graduates evolved from a school constituency into a more formalized and permanent organization. They got together. Birds of a feather flocked together. They got together in associations and fellowships and societies. And prominent were such men as Louis Speary Schaefer and his Dallas Theological Seminary, 1924. They call themselves the primary disseminators of scholarly dispensationalism in America. Somewhat of a self-serving title. A little elitism. I guess that's permissible if you're elite on the right side, though. J. Frank Norris organized his Bible Baptist Seminary, now Arlington School. In his fellowship, he had around 400 churches. And after the infamous and variously named split, fight, or break between Norris and G.B. Vick in 1950 in Fort Worth, the Baptist Bible Fellowship and Baptist Bible College emerged and grew to be the largest school in the history of the Bible College movement, boasting at one time around 4,000 cooperating churches around the world. And of course, there were dozens of others. Tennessee Temple Schools, for instance. Sadly, Tennessee Temple has gone defunct, been swallowed up by another school. But they, they had graduates that spread out all over the country, and they were dispensationalists. Bob Jones University is a curious case, my alma mater. The fortress of the faith, the bastion of fundamentalism of the 20th century, about 10 years back, jettisoned the term fundamentalist and fundamentalism and is now happily called evangelical, a term they wouldn't countenance when I was there. They refuse to be officially identified with premillennialism. Not an essential. Where good men differ, Bob Jones University does not take a stand. They were ominously silent about dispensationalism. There are four to five thousand students, four or five times a week in chapel, got up and said the creed, I believe in the inspiration of the Bible, both the Old and New Testaments, the creation of man by the direct act of God, the incarnation and virgin birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, his identification as the Son of God, his vicarious atonement for the sins of mankind by the shedding of his blood on the cross, the resurrection of his body from the tomb, the new birth through regeneration by the Holy Spirit, and the gift of eternal life by the grace of God. Not a hint of dispensationalism in there. Not a hint of premillennialism. Yet most of the professors and all of the preacher boys are to some extent dispensationalists to a degree. Even Billy Graham, who attended Bob Jones. Even John MacArthur, who attended Bob Jones. Now, 
the Living Faith Bible Institute comes along. And I'll end on this note. It's part of the movement. Years ago, Brett, where are you? Did Todd ever show up? No. Good, I can talk about him. There was a kid at Toledo Baptist Temple where I pastored that decided he wanted to go off and get educated. He went down to Texas and then I heard that he was taking correspondence courses or something from some outfit in Kansas City. And I think I even said to him, Todd, what are you doing? You're in a church basement operation. Your degree won't amount to a hill of frostbitten beans. If Todd was here, I'd apologize to him. I've since become convinced after kind of probing around, some of the kids in our church now are enrolled and taking things, some of the guys and the gals, and I'll duck in for a few minutes and listen. And I thought, my goodness, I'm hearing some good stuff. And I'm not pandering. I'm not blowing smoke. There's no ladder for me to climb. At my age, I can't climb ladders anymore. <laughs> but I am actually convinced, and I have talked to Brett about this, that the product that's being put out because gifted teachers are invited in to do it is actually superior to any Bible college or university. It gets down to the teacher. A really gifted teacher can go out under a tree somewhere and produce a superior product. And you can have a $20 million building, and if the guy can't teach, it doesn't amount to anything. I would just say if you're involved in this, don't let anybody denigrate your education. Just take what you're getting, good stuff, and then go out and use it for Jesus. But all of these taken together had a positive result. And by the way, there's so much arrogance in education. You know that? Man, the military can't touch it. Even politicians, I don't think, are as bad. My older son was enrolled at SMS, taking a religion course, and he had another one of these postures. And the guy was up thinking, oh, yeah, you'll have to excuse me, I think in Greek. <laughs> well, they were in the class, and it was just a new class, by the way, the Assemblies of God, their headquarters, their Jerusalem is Springfield as well. And they have a Bible college there and a seminary there. And there were three of these guys got together. They were friends. And they were specialists in Greek. And they were in a class. And for three or four classes, he would write something on the board. And they would say, I, I don't think that's quite right. When this is that way, the other has to be that way. And he would look at them. And he finally called them together and said, okay, what are you guys doing in here? And they said, oh, this is just our hobby. We want to make sure that we're up to date, so we just kind of take classes for the fun of it. He said, would you please leave? And he was embarrassed. 
Why? They knew more than he did. This is the state university. They have the very best. No, they don't. They knew more than he did, and he wanted them out. But they did serve a purpose. The men, the movements, the institutions gave permanence to sound doctrine and delayed the apostatization of America for about three generations. I think the same thing is happening again. I'd just like you to note that those who are ignorant of history, history are fated to repeat it. Santayana. 